Kia tātou, uh, ko ihu ko au, ko ihu ki mua, ki, ko ihu ki muri, ko ihu ki roto, ko ihu ki waho, ko, ko ihu ki tōku taha Māui, ko ihu ki tōku taha Mātou, ko, ko ihu um, ki ia whatua ki te mai nei au. Amine. Uh, mihi ana ki o koutou katoa, uh, e, e ngā um, hau uh, e whā. Um, ai, tēnei te miharoha ki o koutou, um, ko tāmai tātou ki te whakanui o tō tātou kaihanga. Um, nō reira, koe rā te kaupapa um, o tō tātou uh, wā whakamomiti nei. Um, nō reira, ko wai e tuake nei. Um, my name is Aaron, I grew up in Palmerston North, so I moved from uh, the, the only other city in New Zealand that is landlocked um, to, in fact, when I was in Palmerston North, Hamilton was considered the most boring, uh, no, Palmerston North was considered the most boring city in New Zealand, and then when I moved, Hamilton actually got that label. <laughs> so, you're welcome. Um, and saying that, I love, I love Hamilton. I think about land in far more than entertainment. I think about it in story, in whānau, and those that are there, and in all of the incredible things that are happening. And so I love Kirikiriroa. I love um, what God's been doing here for hundreds and thousands of years. And uh, it's a privilege to be here with you guys. Um, so my name's Aaron Hardy. I lead a church called Te Rautini. Um, I have three beautiful children and um, a wife who's way too good looking for me. Um, and uh, God's been really good to us. Um, uh, we, were, we actually had our anniversary on f- for five years on Friday. And, um, and I was just saying, <laughs> when I got married, I just kind of thought like, because my parents had this amazing marriage, and I just, but all I saw was the end, right? And so we got married, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like the hardest thing in the world. <laughs> I don't like you a lot of the time, you know, and trying to figure this thing out called love, right? And we see all these movies, and it's just like, we fall in love, and then we just keep floating off into the distance, you know, and I'm just like, that is not how it is, people. With thousands of dollars worth of counseling later, I can tell you that is not how it is. But I've learned a lot about love as a result of this. Love, not the feeling, but the covenant, Right? The, the, the sacred, that kawenata tapu, that sacred covenant that you enter into that says, not feeling, not contract, but endless and enduring commitment to what we promised that we would stand for. We have another covenant that's uh, relatively important in God's frame of thinking. Uh, that covenant, te tiriti or waitangi, is profoundly important, another sacred covenant which requires endless commitment, enduring love, and a lot of counseling <laughs> to figure out how to get through this and how to get to the other end knowing that we've honored one another. Now, my people, so I'm, according to uh, Ancestry.com, I am 44% Scottish, something like that, and then mixtures of Irish and English and Welsh. And um, my ancestors were the ones who decided that Scotland would become a nation. They designed the Scottish flag. And um, we were probably the greatest people on the earth. That's what I read. I can't quite verify it, but that's what I've... 
my, uh, on my, the hardy side, we were basically criminals um, who ended up in Australia, drop kicks that came to New Zealand, were like uh, adulterers and all alcoholics, and we're here, there, and everywhere, left, left kids in a bunch of different places, and um, participated in colonization and taking land and all sorts of things like that, a big part of my story. So I uh, stand in the conversation of land uh, from the unique perspective of being a Pākehā person trying to figure out what it means to be here. And God's given me a specific place for a season only to tell some of these stories primarily because I believe that if I was Māori and I said, was it, and I said some of the things that I'm about to say uh, that I would get called an angry Māori and that I need to get over my stuff, right? And so now I'm in this unique position where I'm able to have a conversation for a season until Aotearoa is really ready. And Pākehā Aotearoa is really ready to hear these stories from Māori themselves. So that's why I say that I'm only in this for a short time, to do my, to do my part, to help try and kick the door open so that the Māori voice will have its rightful place. Okay, to pai? Cool. Good. I just said in the other service that if you don't like this, I don't care, because I go back to a bunch of people that like me, so um, send your complaints somewhere in the ether, pray about it, I don't know. Um, but don't worry, these guys will be back next week, and so you'll be able to move on. Um, but I am passionate about the story of Aotearoa, um, primarily because I believe in every tribe and tongue, but I also believe that our pursuit of multiculturalism here has resulted in a uh, monocultural way of doing everything. Because what my people have done is we've gone, it's about the many people. And that's what that's allowed us to do is to go maintain the status quo. This is how we're going to do everything through a really Eurocentric way, the church, the way we do things. And then what we've done is we've added other layers. So we've come up with ways of doing church and life together, and then we've called it the kingdom of God. And if you call something the kingdom of God, then how can you criticize it, right? This is the kingdom of God. Oh, well, why is it that so many minorities are feeling so oppressed by this kingdom of God? You know, I, one person said to me, if this is the kingdom of God, then I don't want to go to heaven because this sucks. <laughs> this is, and the, the church is this fusion of God's grace and humanity's brokenness, Right? But it's still the church, and he still loves her, and he's still trying to work this thing out together. And I love the church, but I love her even more because I understand her brokenness and the story of what God's tried to do for a long time. And I shared this in the, in the first service, but we have this history, right? So in the, the first 250 years of Christianity was some, somewhat really pure. Those that gave their hearts to Jesus, uh, in doing so, were essentially saying, my life will be laid down. Uh, they were being tortured and uh, murdered and burned alive uh, in profound numbers. They were being humiliated on crosses and, and uh, they were being put into arenas and eaten alive by wild animals and they were being boiled in vats of oil and all sorts of things. And people were doing so, I will follow Jesus, knowing that that was the future ahead of them. The Christianity that began... Uh, uh, the onset of Jesus Christ was not an empire. It was not an empire. 
It was collections of people living in villages and community laying their lives down for the good news of Jesus because it was good news to them. And then what happened was a man called Eusebius, who was a church father. Everyone say Eusebius. So Eusebius was a church father, and the Roman Empire came to his village and began to persecute some of the people within it, and it freaked him out. Now, put yourself in his shoes. People came to your house, um, were raping your family members and torturing people and killing your children and whatever. You would probably go, I will do anything I can to figure out how to protect us from that happening again. So fear gripped his heart, and he began to side with a guy called Constantine, who was uh, within the Roman Empire, a man who had an affinity for Christianity, whether he had any kind of real anything in there, it's hard to say. He, and so what Eusebius began to do is he began to create this divine narrative for Constantine, where he began to say things like, Constantine is like the Moses for us. He's gonna, the one that's going to lead our people out of oppression. Um, he's going to lead us out of suffering in this Roman Empire and, so that we can be the people of God and all of these things. So what that did, and this is what the difference between Christianity and Christendom is. Christendom is a Christ, Christian empire without Christ where people take the place of Christ as the divine authority, right? Which is why in America, when it gets to politics, everyone's like, this is the agent of God, this president. No, it's this president. No, it's this president. They're the representative of God. No, they're the representative of God. And I'm like, they're both useless, right? <laughs> if that's the But what that would do by calling them divine agents of God, you basically deliver them from any consequences of bad behavior, so everything that they do is in the name of God, and you might not like it, but they're doing God's will. And so what Constantine did is he created an empire uh, out of Christianity. So Christianity came from being the bullied to the bully. And that's when Christianity stopped being Christianity, and it became Christendom, right? Christendom is empire, right? Now, important to note that in the midst of this, the church was still becoming beautiful in all these different other ways and places, right? Outside of the empire, the church was still blowing up in all sorts of parts of the world, uh, beautifully and in a pure way as well. Good always rises with evil. Fast forward, right? So that's 500 AD, around that kind of time frame. Fast forward into uh, 1500s, and then we get the Pope uh, of the Catholic Church, coming to the king of Portugal and of Spain and saying, you must go into the pagan world, into Africa, and take these pagans and as, as slaves to purify their souls of, of their evils. So they went into Africa, and that is the beginning of race-based slavery. So race-based slavery was the beginning, was begun from the church. Just sila moment that pause that race-based slavery began from the church and you go well that's the Catholic Church and it's like no nah, it wasn't just the Catholic Church they opened the doorway and then it was free for all and so after that point uh, around that same time actually so those decrees were called papal bulls you can read up about that there's actually an incredible book written by an indigenous American man called Mark Charles called the Unset Unsettled oh, Unsettling Truths, and it's the, probably the greatest history book that I've read, actually. Um, but he, he goes on, and he says that 
after that period of time, they developed a thing called Anglo-Saxon purity mythology, which was this idea that people of Germanic descent, which was English people, uh, had a superior uh, perspective on life, they had superior religion, superior intellect, superior way of doing family, superior thought, all of that stuff, and they happened to also be white. So that's the beginning of the construct of whiteness. Right? So that's where white people began to disconnect from being Irish, from being Scottish, from being English, and they became just one superior construct, which was above all. Right? So that's an important uh, part of history to understand that whiteness is a construct, it's created. So back in, uh, beyond that point, saying like the 1300s, 1200s, it would never be. It would never be, there's these white people, and there's this there, and you would be, you're from this clan, you're from that tribe, you're connected to this land. So the construct of whiteness actually disconnected a whole lot of European people from their whakapapa and their heritage and their history in the name of white superiority. So fuse that Anglo-Saxon mythology with some incorrect reading of Scripture which says, go into all the world, right? Preach the good news in the name of Christendom. And so what did they end up looking like? We're going to go into America and we're going to slaughter and wipe out entire tribes of people because we are a superior people and us being here is the work of God. It's God establishing his kingdom. These evil pagans, they need to either turn or burn or else the kingdom of God won't be present, right? So these evils were being committed, even though they would have been reading in scripture, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. They had a way of going, that's not my neighbor. That's an evil person with an evil world and an evil worldview and my responsibility to my God is to kill and destroy and vanquish that. This is the case in point. The, uh, when they started to take indigenous uh, American children out of their homes and put them into orphanages or schools, much like they did in Australia, the thought was, uh, kill the Indian, save the soul. Do you understand what I mean? So it was, if we can get rid of anything that is remotely Indian about this child, they'll be rescued. They'll be freed. So it was this belief that if they could become like us, then they would be liberated and we would be doing the work of God. That, my friends, is not Christianity. That is Christendom. That is empire. Now, empire always has conquest with it. Like it was always the conquering, the expansionism, all of those types of things. Now, many of our church visions often feel like they're really similar. <laughs> We're going to conquer the ends of the earth. We're going to expand into here and there. And sometimes I'm like, oh, man, this is a little Christendom-y. Um, but without history, how can we know these things, right? This is the hard part of our history. Now, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uh, like I said, I'm, I'm Scottish, so I... I have no fear or hesitation in sharing these stories. I often don't understand why my people get so defensive. I just, it's, it's kind of like getting annoyed that the sky is blue. It's like it just is what it is. It's, you can't change it. It's just part of our history. And, and history untold is history that repeats. Now, the reason why all of that is important is because all of that mindset crept its way into Aotearoa as well. We were not free from the influences of that 
of that worldview and that imagination. However, the social conscience of England was beginning to change. Okay, does that make sense? So there was certain things that were starting to shift in the imagination and in the minds of, of the English people. And let me just get to some notes here. Da, 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 da. This is what happens when you speak and don't look at your actual notes. So, where are we? Sorry, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. So one of the things that happened is there was a four foot nine preacher called John Wesley in, in England, and he said that, it said that he walked England so many times that he did the equivalent of uh, 10 times around the uh, circumference of the earth. So that's how, he, he said that he knew England back to front. Now everywhere that he went, uh, they can directly trace the abolition of slavery, the emancipation of industrial workers in England, the humanizing of the prison systems, the reform of the penal code, code London City Mission, the Barnardos Orphanage Homes, establishment of polytechnics, Boy Scouts and Girl Guides, the RSPCA and more. All of these movements can track their connection to John Wesley, who was awakening the social conscience of England, saying maybe the way that we've been doing this is evil. On his deathbed, he wrote a letter to William Wilberforce saying, you must do everything that you can to end slavery. And William Wilberforce said, it is the true duty of every man to promote the happiness of his fellow creatures to the utmost of his power. His nephew, William Wilberforce's nephew, Sir James Stevens, wrote a report for the Aborigines Protection Society explaining the treatment and experience of indigenous peoples in the colonies. Now, that report was basically like, look how we've messed this up everywhere. So their motivation heading into New Zealand was, we want to try and do this differently. And so one of the instructions was this, I've already stated that we acknowledge New Zealand as a sovereign and independent state. So the treaty was negotiated under the imagination that they were talking with an independent and sovereign nation, not seeking to cede that sovereignty, but join in partnership with that sovereignty. The Queen, in common with Her Majesty's predecessor, disclaims for herself and her subjects every pretension to seize on the islands of New Zealand or to govern them as part of the dominions of Great Britain unless the free, intelligent consent of the natives expressed according to their established usages shall first be obtained. They must not be permitted to enter into any contracts in which they might be ignorant or unintentional authors of injuries to themselves. This type of treaty had never been written throughout the world, ever. There are 700 treaties in the United States of America, and there are probably less than 700 people who know what they are in America. (laughs) Well, actually, I take that back. Pretty much all of the indigenous community will know what they are. But the non-indigenous people will have no concept. Now, we don't honor our treaty well in Aotearoa, but the one thing that we do have is that if you mention Te Tiriti or Waitangi, every New Zealander will know what it is, right? They have some kind of frame of reference, whether it's good or bad. Now in the church, one of the things that I hear the most is like, move on, right? The old is gone, the new has come. I, I said this before, but those are out of context scriptures. The old is gone and the new has come was Paul talking not about forgetting history, because if we forgot history, then why do we have the Bible, right? It was about him saying, I'm moving on, I'm forgetting the standards, the, um, 
the world that I once had, I'm letting go of my fame and the glory and the status that I had within the Jewish pharisaical world. I'm moving on. I'm moving on from that. Then we have the other scripture that's like, we are neither Jew nor Gentile. And, I, and it's the same conversation. This was not a conversation about eradicating culture. This was about saying to the Jewish people, the promise of God will always be yours, but now it is not just yours. It is all of ours as well. Now we often go, we use that to go, it's not about culture, it's about Jesus. And I'm like, well, okay, let's move on. Neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. Do we also not believe in gender, that God came to eradicate gender? Was that part of his plan as well? You know what I mean? So we've used these scriptures to create a narrative that has been able to say, this is the way. And if we build all these walls around it, then we won't have to justify it. So Henry Williams He's in Wellington, and uh, the New Zealand company, he'd, before that, had been blown off course into the South Island. He rocks up into the South Island and realizes that in the New Zealand company, which was established as a uh, corporation to make money, basically, uh, had bought the entirety of the South Island. He freaks out, goes to Wellington. Then the New Zealand company rocks up to Wellington and goes, we've bought Wellington. And the Iwi's like, what the heck? No, you haven't. Henry Williams then walks from Wellington all the way up north, takes him like three months, stopping at different iwi and going, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. So they get to the point of signing to Tiriti or Waitangi. And Honeheke says to him, it's not up to us, but up to our fathers. You, the missionaries, you tell us if this is going to be a good, good thing. And they say, yeah, it's a, do it. It's a good thing. From that point on, the violations were rampant. Settlers came in in droves and the missionaries stopped engaging with the Maori world and started to cater to the English European uh, church that was coming through and going, we will now exist for here. And the contextualized, beautiful picture of the gospel that was starting to arrive was halted and the people were deeply wounded. It was not only did you tell us to sign this, but now all of our land is gone. Now our language is being taken. Now our story is being totally ripped out from underneath of us. You, you, aren't you? Don't you represent Jesus? Is one, one, one of the um, the Komatoa at the signing. He said, "If you, if your understanding of Christ is as ours, then this will be a good thing." Profound, right? Basically, we understand who Jesus is. If you do then this should be right. And you can imagine the level of pain and disappointment, right? You introduce us to this God who you don't honor in your actions and your, your way of being and your way of doing life. And so then all this land goes, and you know what? I've heard from so many Christians, oh, it's, we just need to move on. We just, you know, that flippant treaty, who cares about it? And I'm like, oh man, just foolishness. Land is primarily part of the biblical narrative. In fact, Old Testament theologian Walter Brueggemann, he says, we can no longer just talk about God and his people. We must talk about God, his people, and land as the primary narratives, right? God was always trying to get Israel to a promised land. Why? It was just because they grew some nice oranges there? No, he gave them promises that went with them wherever they went, but there were specific promises that would never be realized until their feet were on that soil. 
those promises get actualized in that standing place, which is why when I'm talking to Tamiaho, who is this land, this soil here, I'm not just talking to a friend or a leader or a voice or a maangai for Waikato. I'm talking to a promise. Someone who, is, as long as his feet are here, he's connected to a promise of God that's unfolding. And this is one of the things that when we talk about land confiscation, we go, oh, well, you know, this is just the way that life is. You disconnect people from land. You disconnect them from promise. You disconnect people from promise. You disconnect them from hope. You disconnect people from hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Move on. We have in Waikato stories, Rangi Alfia, like the food basket of this whole, of really the North Island. After, during the wars, the Dangaridi Wars and all of that, right towards the end, the, the, the crown sort of de- diverted the plans and headed to Rangiafia, a place where, a huge place with men, women, komatua, children, primarily the old and the, and the young. And a missionary was seen riding on a horse, whether it was his intent or whether it was just foolishness. That is still what happened. Riding on the horse uh, beside the settler army that comes through. And what do they do? They shoot these people. They burn the church. They burn people alive. Broke all of the rules that they said that they would never break. And they were able to do it under Christendom. We're doing it in the name of God. We're extending for the people of God because they believed that they were the new Israel, which is the same exceptionalism that we hear in America. It's that same belief, right? That we are the people of God. I read, we, we in the West, we read the Bible and we're like, that's me, that's me, that's me. That, that, none of that Bible is about me, friends, nor you. They are stories of uh, indigenous people from a long time ago who we're trying to make sense of. But I am not Moses, I am not Joshua. We can learn some things out of there, but instead we've tried to make ourselves, I, we are now the chosen people. We are these exceptional people above all else. The church, Christianity, and Christians stand above the world with a responsibility to dictate the terms. And I don't see Jesus there. I see Jesus bloodied on a cross who said, you want power? Die. You want a voice? Listen. You want to be prophetic? Lay your life down. We have gotten confused with what our fight is. We've decided to die on all sorts of strange hills. And Jesus is coming back and going, will you be part of the reparations and the restoration of this story? I'm still waiting. We say, move on and thank the Lord that Jesus didn't move on when he repaired the ills of Adam and Eve thousands of years later. He saw it fit to come back and make something right that was wrong. My belief, guys, is that if you are Tongan or if you're Samoan, if you, whatever you are, if you come to Jesus and you uh, are Samoan and you don't become more Samoan, then you've experienced some level of colonization, right? If you're Irish and you come to Jesus and you become culturally diminished, there's a problem there. Because Jesus is the one who designed you, made you, thought about you, created your cultural identity. And if your cultural identity becomes diminished or squashed or demeaned, who have you met? 
not your creator. That doesn't make sense. You are made in my image. Let me destroy your image. Right? What, do we think that when God made us, He just went, Aaron, I'm just going to make you on the outside. You look flipping good. But that's all you are. You're a shell. And that's part of our narrative, right? We're a shell. We're our spirits. And all of us is the image of God. So much of our cultural way of being, breathing, thinking. We read that scripture that talks about the many parts of the body, right? And we're often like, oh, that's me. I'm the little finger. I'm the thumb. You can be the heel or whatever it might be. Um, We read it so personally, right? But I don't. I read it from an international perspective. What, who is Aotearoa in the body? Well, first Aotearoa is Māori. That's who Aotearoa really is. Aotearoa is Māori, and Māori signed a treaty that gave the ability for non-Māori to enter into the story and make home, right? If we don't honour the first story, the second story, the third story, the fourth story, the fifth story, never find a home, never flourish, never realised. And this is what I was talking to my, um, my sisters before about the whole, even the narrative of the Pacific. We have this overstayer narrative, right? When we, we understand that through, uh, uh, through, through early um, travelling, we have the Hawaii thought that, the descending from Hawaii, then to Hawaii, and then we've got like Savai in Samoa, and then we know that in the Cook Islands they're contemplating renaming the Cook Islands to Avaiki. And we have like this narrative, this migration relationship that's already existing, where Pacific Island people and Maori and all these others have all these existing relationships, and then colonization enters in and convinces New Zealand that she's more a part of, a, of Europe than the Pacific, and then starts calling the cousins the overstayers. You guys are overstaying. What do you mean we're overstaying? We've been here heaps before you. You got here and stayed for ages. And now you're the flipping principal as well. But do you understand what I mean? These are the narratives that are asleep. And if we don't see them, we will never be awake. And so what we will do by saying it's all good in Jesus' name is that we will break God's heart in Jesus' name because he's going, heal it, fix it. You don't just need one sorry on a Sunday. Let's have a sorry Sunday for all the bad stuff that's happened. No, it is a posture. Reconciliation is a posture. It is a posture. And the church has not taken that posture. We have not postured ourselves low. We've gone, we are the answer for you. We might change a few things, might sing a few songs, might change it up. But ultimately, you need us more than we need you. And I think God's just going, oh my gosh. These guys think they're so smart, right? In my name, they think they're so smart. And yet we have this story of Māori that were awakened to God long before any Pākehā person showed up. Going, we've always been here. God's always been here. Why are you trying to act like you gave us the gift of Jesus? Right? And I said this before. We think we wrap Jesus up and evangelism is giving someone like a gift. Unwrap that. There you go. Have a good life. But it's not. We were made in the image of God. Our divine DNA is running through us and has always run through us, which is Jesus. 
He is not the exclusive right of the European church. He has been uh, prostituted to the empire and, and the empire has disregarded any of his words. In the name of a democratic leader or a Republican leader, Donald Trump will lead us to glory, right? Or will it be Jacinda? Or will it be the National Party? Or will it be this? And oh no, but it's what we need is this pastor. If this pastor stands up, or what about that pastor? That pastor stands up. We're still looking for Constantine. We're still looking for a king. King David, King this, King that. If we just have some earthly leader, they'll be able to stand up and then everything will be great. We'll call them divine and even when they completely mess up and destroy people's lives, we will say glory to God. We've been given an invitation to be truthful storytellers so that we are participants in the truth, the truth that sets people free. And my belief is that the moment that we're in is as significant as the civil war, I mean, yeah, the civil uh, rights situation in America, when the church, the white church, had to figure out would they stand on the side of justice for black people? Would they, which way, and the vast majority of the white church did not. They stood for the status quo of segregation, slavery, brokenness of the rights. You know that in the uh, Constitution, the American Constitution, uh, the only person that's actually noted in there is white landowning men. The American Constitution that they read out often in churches on a Sunday. You read further along, it calls indigenous people and black people savages and half-human. It also doesn't mention any woman these things that have been placed up, not noted, not talked about, these narratives, right, of our exceptionalism and God is saying, you are exceptionally beautiful, but you are no more important than anyone else. And I'm trying to work this thing out, this reconciliation narrative between us. I believe, you know, whether it's 10 people or five people or a million people, that these conversations must happen. We must be bold in them. And I was talking to these guys before that uh, by 2050, there'll be a million Maori in New Zealand that the vast majority of the church will be Pacific Islander and the fastest growing population in New Zealand will be Pacific Islander and Asian. So over 50% of New Zealand will be not white. So there's a demographic shift that's happening quickly and we need every tribe and every tongue to know context, location, narrative so that the Maori story doesn't slide further and further and further and further and further down. So where are we in the midst of this and what is our responsibility? Well, you know what? That's not my job to figure out for you. That's on you. And this is the thing. When we come to church on a Sunday, we often want to feel good. We want a dopamine hit. We want to be told that we're loved. And that's great. We are loved and we are important and we do matter. But we're also a little bit munted. And we need challenge in our life to remind us that our brokenness, God wants to fix. Right? He's, he's keen on not letting you stay stupid. Right? I'm grateful for that in my own life. I need God to keep telling me, Aaron, I love you, but you're a little bit of an idiot. Let's sort this out together. We have narratives that we've inherited and received. We've done nothing about, but now we have the opportunity to do something about. And this ship is sailing with or without you. And so will you be on that sailboat or will you not? And that's the great challenge.